You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Terry Riley, titled Gaining, Saving, and Spending, from the series Financial Incorrectness. For more info, visit creekside.org. If you would take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're in the second part of a three-part series on financial incorrectness. And, you know, the reason I say that is because there's so many politically correct, incorrect, whatever phraseology you want to use taking place in our culture today. And a lot of the things that we talk about really are probably not financially correct in terms of our culture and how we deal with our resources. And I think it's probably really true today, as you'll see, that our culture has a whole different orientation than what God says. What's amazing, though, if you went to any financial counselor, just about everything that they could tell you could be found in the Scriptures. And uh, next week, I'm going to probably have uh, over 100 Proverbs that just talk to you about some of those things, whether it's investments, whether it's work, saving, giving, preparing for the future, and give you those Scriptures so you have them at your disposal so that you can use them and do further study. But today I want to just, I want to use this, this passage as kind of a, a, a dropping off, as a launching point uh, for where we're going to go, because I'm really going to talk a lot out of the Proverbs today. So <clears throat> chapter 6, I want to start at uh, verse 2 there, at the end of verse 2. It's right before verse 3. It's kind of, they didn't break this up real well. First Timothy 6, beginning at verse 3, it says, "Is teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, that's what our teaching should always do, is to promote godliness, not schisms and divisions. But it really should bring us closer together in understanding of who Jesus Christ is and how his life affects ours. He is conceited, understanding nothing but, have, but having a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envies, quarrelings, slanders, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among men whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine, get this, who imagine, this is part of this bad doctrine here, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is really the greatest gain. The godliness, when we are truly content, that's where, uh, that's where godliness and contentment come together. And he says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can sure take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these things. I talked about John Wesley briefly a few, uh, couple few weeks ago. John Wesley was a great preacher, evangelist, who I told you went through the United Kingdom, and he went on horseback and preached over 25,000 sermons um, in his day. The Anglican church basically said he was too radical to be in and preach in the church. So he said, okay, well, this is what I'll do. So he set out with his brother Charles, who was a, mus- a musician and a songwriter, and they began to travel around. They called him a circuit rider. They'd go, and wherever they went, they'd preach. 
And uh, John Wesley, excuse me, Charles Wesley was such a, a prolific songwriter and musician, he would actually go to pubs and he would pick up their music and he would take their music and then he would take Christian lyrics and put it to them. So even if you look at a hymnal today and you see some of the hymnals that are done by Charles Wesley, they might have come out of a, an English pub or something. And he did that because it was a way to attract other people who might be walking by a revival service that him and his brother John were having. Well, they also started the Methodist movement. Now, John was a prolific preacher, and he did a text one day on Luke chapter 16, verse 9, which I talked out of a couple of weeks ago. And as he was going through it, he spelled out his very simple philosophy on money. And he said this, money is a tool that can be used for great good or great ill. It is an excellent gift of God. And he went on to spell out three simple rules that can guide us, and I'm going to kind of use it as a guide for this week and next week. First rule, he said, was this, gain all you can. Second rule was save all you can. And his third rule was give all you can. Pretty basic stuff. It's interesting because in his day, I think it was 1,400 pounds or something that he was making, and that would have been the equivalent then to today for about $300,000. So he became kind of a rich preacher. But here's the caveat. The more that he began to get, the more he gave. He learned and taught himself to live on 20% of his income and gave 80% of it away. He even said there's a quote. I don't get it right, but he said, you know, if I have more than 10% of my resources left after I die, that is not good. So he really lived these principles out. And I want you to see the first one here is simply this gain all you can. That was Wesley's first rule. Despite its potential for misuse, money is really something that's good in and of itself. Here's what he said. There is no end to the good it can do. In the hands of God's children, it is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, clothing for the naked, yea, a lifter from the gates of death. Wesley added that in gaining all one can, the Christian must be careful not to damage mind, body, soul of themselves or other people. But here's what he said. He said, gain all you can. I love what Timothy says. He says, you know what? Godliness with contentment is great gain. And imagine, he says, uh, that there are those, though, who believe that, uh, he, he says, imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. There are preachers out there. There are ministry people who really see the ministry as a way to great gain, but he said that's, that's not the way we live. As a matter of fact, there's a segment of the church. It's not as prevalent today, but there was this thing called the prosperity gospel. It was kind of you confess it and you can get it. And it's really, it's just a little bit off because God has no problem with how much we have. But the problem is, is that there's this health and wealth and prosperity. I call it the gab it and grab it theology you know, by this simple positive confession. If I confess it, I can get it. And that's not how it works. These people begin to teach that if God is on your side, you will be rich. 
That is the validation of God's blessing. Now, I believe that can, that can show God's blessing, but that's not the validation of God's blessing, but that's what they taught. That if you're really tracking with God and you're giving enough, guess what? You're going to have a great home. You're going to have a great bank account, wonderful portfolio. Kids will go to college and life will be good. That's called the prosperity gospel. And there's nothing like that that's taught in the gospels for us because some of God's greatest saints were pretty poor. I mean, just consider Jesus. He said he didn't have a place to lay his head. The apostle Paul who at one time had a lot of goods as a Pharisee, but as soon as he became a Christ follower, he was basically the same way. He was a traveler. He went around and he didn't just get money off the ministry. Where he got money was he became a tent maker. So wherever he'd go, he'd be uh, uh, putting together tents, making tents. That was his way of income. But there's also a false teaching in some churches today that it's a sin to have things. That's not true either. See, you've got these two extremes. And as you read the scriptures, you've got to know them well enough. You want to grow in them so that these truths can be held in dynamic tension and you can live and walk down the middle of the road of these truths. Some of God's great saints were very wealthy. We know David was. We know Solomon was the richest man of his time. We know in the New Testament, Barnabas was. He was called the son of encourager, not just because of the words that he gave, but because of his willingness to sell off some of his things to be able to help those first century Christians be able to, to live once they were extricated or removed from their home because of their faith and their belief. See, the Bible teaches it is the love of money, not money, not goods. It's the love and the pursuit of those things that are the problem, that they are a root, not the root. They are a root to the sources of evil. Hear me, loved ones, it is not wrong to have things. The Bible does teach, though, that it is wrong to have resources and not be willing to help your brother. That's why I'm so proud of this church, to see so many that are making sacrifice to be able to help missionaries overseas, to be able to help local missionaries, excuse me, missions work here in the East Bay and to be able to reach our community. That's an incredible blessing. Because money really, it can tweak you and it can, it can affect your relationships. I mean, think, there's this guy, he was talking to his fiance. And he says, listen, honey, we're going to be getting married and I just want you to know, I cannot, I cannot give you what Johnny Green can give you. I can't give you a really nice boat. I can't give you uh, a really big, beautiful, palatial house. I can't give you a Ferrari. But here's what I can give you. I will give you my undying love for the rest of our lives. And his fiance looks at him and smiles and is thinking, and she goes, I love you too. But could you tell me a little bit more about Johnny Green? <laughs> And, and sometimes we, you know, that's, that's kind of how money can affect and to shape our values in life. Here's what I want you to do is gain all you can. But the Bible is really clear. It talks all the time in Proverbs that as you become a person that gains, because it always, it always holds in juxtaposition, it contrasts the sluggard and the wise person who gets up early, who prepares for the future, who gets up and works. It talks about the people that are always pursuing quick gain, the problems that befall them. 
And I want us to be a church that is blessed financially because we do it God's way. So don't ever think that you can't pursue resources and financial strength and prosperity for the sake of the kingdom, but it never becomes the validation of who you are before God. And be careful, because as it continues to say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that can be the thing that pierces your soul, and we can get off track. So gain all you can. Secondly, John Wesley said this, save all you can. Wesley's second rule for money use was save all you can. He urged his hearers not just simply to spend money, because it's easy to spend money for these reasons. He says, don't spend money to gratify the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, or the pride of life. You know, so you kind of look like you're trying to impress people. When people spend things on the, what they really need, you know what? Or when they spend things on things that they don't need, what they begin to do is they begin to develop an appetite. What does an appetite do when you feed it? It just continues to grow. And a lot of times we'll see people like that. They buy all these things that they want, and you know what? They're never satisfied. They just continue to buy and to pursue things. Now, hear me. In the, in, we're living in a season right now of a really good economy. But I think all of us understand this truth that even in that good economy, you can experience financial shortfalls. There can be that unexpected hospital bill that is larger than you expected, and maybe the insurance doesn't cover it all. Maybe your kids need braces or the car goes bad at the most inopportune time in life. Or maybe there's more taxes than what you expected. If you have nothing in reserve for these unexpected times, you, you live on the precipice of financial dis- disaster. And pretty soon it's so easy to move into burdensome debt and family tensions. When I deal in counseling, friends, one of the biggest issues, it's not the biggest, but it's one of them. A lot of the issues that married couples have, that families have, comes because of debt or financial tensions or an inability to work out how they're going to deal with their finances. Sometimes one's a spender and one's a saver. That's not bad. That's pretty good as long as you can learn to work and grow together in that. You know what's really difficult is when you have two spenders. But save. And I really believe this. Save a little regularly if you can't save a lot. Save at least a little bit regularly. Did you know this? I I was reading these statistics yesterday. I was looking them up. There's just a, a truckload of them, but they're really amazing. 36% of adults haven't started saving yet. 36% of the American population of adults have have not started saving. More than one quarter of adults age 50 to 64 aren't saving anything for their golden years or their retirement. One quarter. Having $500 in the bank for emergencies really can be a help to a lot of us, and it can give us a little bit stronger financial peace. Guess what? For 41% of adults, that's a pipe dream. 41% of adults in the United States don't have $500 in the bank that they could quickly access if an emergency came up. Approximately 25% of the adults have no savings set aside for emergency, while another 36% have yet to start socking money away for retirement. 
I, I want to say that if you're a millennial here, which is the right now, and it's because they're the youngest uh, demographic in the United States, but if you're a dem if you're a if you're a millennial or a young adult under 40, I hope that you'll hear this today and not put it off, but you will take this not just as some kind of financial principles, but you'll see it as God's Word and begin to allow it to embed in your heart and your soul and your spirit to get you where you need to go. I'm convinced of this, that even if you have credit card debt, you should save a little bit every month or every paycheck. Well, why would I want to do that? Why would I just want to pay off our debt? Because at some point, the hardest thing to do is to establish good saving habits. And I recommend that even before you pay off all your debt, you start saving a little bit for two reasons. Number one, to get you into the habit of saving. And number two, so you have this little account over here that you can draw upon if, a, if, if some kind of major problem comes up or small issue comes up. You can, always, you can always increase the savings later. But for most of us, as I'll share in a minute, we, we, we just have a hard time learning to save, to set aside some money for an emergency. The wisest man at this time said this in Ecclesiastes eleven twelve. You don't know what disaster may come upon the land or upon your household. For some of us, how many of us have been surprised by income tax? We didn't save for it. All of a sudden, we get this big income tax bill. I love what this one lady she did. She sent the IRS a note and said, please take me off your mailing list. <laughs> That's a, I love the idea, but it won't work. See, loved ones, if you don't set anything aside for an emergency that arises, what oftentimes happens is we go to our credit cards, which puts us back into a black hole that some of us have maybe come out of. That's why financial guru Dave Ramsey suggests that we accumulate $1,000 for an emergency fund. Proverbs 21.20 says this, The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Here's the wisdom here. In good times, you live on less than you make. We're in good times. This is a time to enjoy it, but also to be putting away. You don't need to buy the biggest house that you can possibly afford. Even if you get a realtor saying, oh, yeah, you can afford it, you can do it. No, go less. You don't need to drive the most expensive car because you assume that everything's going to be able to be taken care of. Too many people live on the precipice. They live on the financial edge. And then when something happens, it affects them so adversely. It is important, the Scripture says, to practice enough frugality in your personal finances that you always have some left over. When I was most, most pastors, preachers, missions people, they, don't, they really, most of them I know, they never went into ministry because of money. Because there's really not a lot in it. As a matter of fact, I, uh, when I went to Lodi back in 1981 out of college, um, before I said yes, my senior pastor, who's my spiritual father, whom I love deeply, uh, at the time I had some problems with him, but he said this, he looked at me and said, two things, if you come here, I want you to know. Number one, I won't compliment you. Because for every compliment you get, you're probably going to get five people stabbing you in the back, talking you down. I said, well, okay, ministry sounds good. 
because I was a fairly new Christian. I had just gone through, become a Christ follower, went to Bible college to play basketball, ended up finishing four years and was offered this job. And I just always thought that, wow, look at the guy up front. Everybody must really love him. I mean, he's dressed nice. He seems like a nice guy. And they're all sitting there listening to him. <laughs> Second thing he said was this. He goes, and if you come here, I just want you to know I'm not going to pay you well because I don't want you to get comfortable. And he didn't. I was a high school youth pastor that oversaw high school and junior high, but my high school group was three times larger than the next closest youth group. And out of seven, I was third or fourth um, lowest paid. So he, 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 he held true to his word. Oh, I, he did give me one compliment in six years. But he never paid me well. Now, while I hated it at the time, this is what I learned. I learned how to live on not very much. And it served me well there because then I went and started a church where I made hardly anything. And then when I came here, I made hardly anything. Had to go back to work for a year, as a matter of fact. And there's some great lessons there. But, but, you know, but we don't do, I don't do that with our staff. Actually, they're, they're taken well care of. And I actually force them to open up a retirement account that we help with so that they learn to serve. Because here's the deal. I didn't learn this, believe it or not. Um, as a young man, after I'd come to Christ fairly soon, you know what one of the first things I did was? I started tithing. I was 17, 18 years old. And I ended up going from the church that I started in for a year and went to this other church and from Portland to Milwaukee where this pastor was planting a church. And so our family lived closer, so we ended up going there. One day he preached on giving, and I started giving. What's interesting was I was 17 or 18. I was giving, but I wasn't saving a dime. I guess it's because the Scripture says don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, and I was simply obeying that command because I didn't want Jesus to come back and find me with a truckload of money, you know, just sitting there. Not really, I just wasn't disciplined, <clears throat> and nobody taught me about saving. As a matter of fact, it really wasn't until I got here that one of the brothers in, in this service, he sat down and, and he began to teach me about doing this and the importance of it and preparing for my future. Because most pastors, you know, we don't really think much about money. We just want to do God's work, and we figure he'll take care of us. That's not a really good way to live, because I know a lot of pastors that I deal with now that haven't taken care of anything, and they can't retire. And so what do they do? They stay in a church, and that church simply just grows old and older with them, and it begins to go backwards instead of forwards. And I told our leadership, I would never do that. See, hear, 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 hear this. My goal isn't to retire. My goal is to be able to retire so that I never have to stick around and I wouldn't for a paycheck. That's why we've got to take care of ourselves, loved ones. That's why young people, it's important that you start now so that when you get to that age and maybe some of your work effectiveness begins to wane and you're not as strong, you have the ability to do it. I don't believe that retirement should be our ultimate goal. It's not mine. There's nothing wrong with it. But start saving 
a little bit. Proverbs 6.6 6 says this, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. See, he's, uh, the, the, uh, Solomon is here is comparing the sluggard with the ant that's very industrious. It says he has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its, prov- stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. See, that, that ant he stores up in the summer so when the winter comes, he has something to eat. It's just part of who he is. Now, if you and I were able to, you, you know that Martinez is kind of like an anthill. As a matter of fact, I think this place here that this building was built on was, was simply more people say it was just an anthill before this building and this community was here. These houses, this neighborhood. I mean, when it rains and I just live down the street, man, it's like ants just come from everywhere and even in here. But if we could get out an ident- a, a magnifying glass and look at them, you know what you're not going to see? You're not going to see them with their little leggies up in the air. You're not going to see them depressed. You're not going to see them weeping when their pile of morsels begins to dwindle. Why? Because they trust God. First of all, they've prepared, but they trust that God's going to provide. And in this cycle of life, it's going to be taken care of. Now, hear me. There's a difference between a harvester and a hoarder. A harvester stores up in the fall so that there's something to eat later. A hoarder stores up year-round so there's this sense of security. But it's a false sense of security ultimately because, hear me, loved ones, we've seen the economy tank before. I mean, just go back to 1929. Our money is never totally secure. It will never save us. Well, what are you saying? You're saying gain all you can, save all you can, but it's never secure. Here's the point. Have you ever seen people that just put their trust in their money? And that's what can happen sometimes as we begin to save. We begin to save and we get so excited about it, we begin to focus on the savings just for saving's sake instead of saying, I can use this and I can leverage it at different times for a harvest offering or for when an emergency comes up. And pretty soon we go from just saving to becoming a little bit miserly. I've seen people when it comes, I've worked with churches where the pastors say, man, can you talk to my, can you talk to my bookkeeper? I ask for a check. And it's like I've got to pull it out of them because they see the account. It's not because they're frugal. It's because they become tight. And there's some people, they just can't write a check. That's why I'm proud of our church. Because I really believe that we're demonstrating that our hope is not in the wealth of this world, but in the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. See, that's really encouraging because when tough times come, loved ones, we need to be the ones that are ready to be able to help people. And I know that goes against some of your grain But Jesus in Proverbs and in Jesus in the New Testament, he said, you've got the poor. You have a commitment to help them. Rick Warren, I believe, did a study on this. And he said that if we, if the church, if every church in the United States and everybody in those churches tithed biblically, we could probably eradicate poverty in the United States if we come together and used our resources. That's a whole nother part, but I, I just, that's why I'm so pleased with where we are today as a church, is that you're willing to give and to extend yourself. And I want to say again to young couples and young singles and young people, don't wait till you're older to begin. Don't think that, oh yeah, I'm 21, 
when I get to be 31, I'll start. No, start now. Because I really, if you don't start now, it's going to be really, it's going to get much harder to start. The more bills you get, the more responsibilities you have. Start now. And here's one of the biggest issues that keep us from doing this. It's spending. Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. There's different kinds of spenders because our culture basically says, get more. That's the cultural message. And it leads to kind of four kind of spending habits that prevent us from saving. We end up buying lots of stuff we don't need, trying to impress people that we really don't even like. But that's how some people really do live. They want everyone to see this newest thing that they got. Consumerism is characterized by these four things. First of all, greed. I want more. See, doesn't greed sound really sinister? Oh, they're a greedy person. But all it is is that I just want more. It's always wanting more. Greed is never satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And what it's talking about, it's not talking about a desire to get more. It's talking about this, this compulsion of the heart that just pursues money for money's sake. Now again, it's not wrong to be rich. But is that the, is that the compelling driving force of your heart and your life, even beyond the things of God? If you let yourself get caught up in a, in a consumer lifestyle, loved ones, it's an appetite that the more you feed it, the more it grows. Go home and look in your home. Is there any hobby that you have or anything that you really like to do? I mean, for me, I, you know, if I, if I went home and I had 10 drivers, 10 golf drivers in my bag and my kids needed something, I think I probably was greedy, you know? But is there anything in your house like that? Well, you just got to have more. You got to have more. Jesus warned us. He said this in Luke 12, 15, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his goods, his possessions. Watch out that your life isn't being built around stuff. I mean, how many of us, if we went home and we opened up our garage, somebody would walk by and go, are you guys having a sale here? You know, because it's just so full of stuff. Off. Discontent. It's another thing that keeps us from saving. I'm just tired of this old stuff. It's not greed, but the Bible counts, uh, counsels us to be content, as I saw, in, as we saw in 1 Timothy 6. Hebrews 13:5 says this: keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Contentment's a tough deal. But Paul said this in Philippians chapter 4. Now remember, Paul was probably well off, well to do, well healed when he was a Pharisee. But then he comes to Jesus. He comes to Christ and it begins to be kind of a downward and to the right economic pattern for him. But he comes to Philippians chapter 4. He's in jail. He's a brilliant scholar, bright man. He's had it all. And what does he say? You know, church... I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content when I was well off and I'm content now when I'm not so well to do. You know what an important part of that is? 
He says, I have learned. That's not how our culture operates today, is it? We don't learn, we just do. If I want, I get. Which leads us to the next one. It's impulse spending. There are those who see and they think, I want, which leads them very quickly to, I have to have. And they just begin to buy it immediately. They don't think about it. They don't pray about it. They don't talk to their spouse about it. They just go and get it. If they have cash in their pocket or they've got credit on their card, they throw it down and they buy it. It's impulse spending. A lot of times because it's fun. It's there. I can do it. I want to. Or because it's just an impulse that we're fed up and or I want. Say you've had that same old musty car for 12 years. Driving down the road, it's in the summer, the thing overheats, you got to pull over. You call AAA, AAA comes, you say, could you haul this car to the garage? You go to the garage, the guy goes, listen, it's going it's to cost you about 450 bucks. So you get on the phone and and you just impulsively get on the phone to your spouse. Come pick me up at the garage. We're going to go over to the Ford dealer. She gets in the car. Yeah, I don't want to spend $450 on that old clunker. So you go to the Ford dealer, and within one, in, within one hour, you impulsively spend $60,000 on a brand new SUV that's now going to cost you $700 for the rest of your life, $700 a month for the rest of your life. Isn't that easy to do? That new car smell? Now hear me. If you can afford that, I'm not, that's not a problem. But too many people in our United States and our culture around the world live beyond our means because we're impulse spenders. I believe this, loved ones. We've got to grow in being values-driven. How you spend should be a reflection of your values as a Christ follower living under the leadership of Jesus Christ. If somebody looked at your credit card slip, if somebody looked at your bank statement, your checkbook, if somebody looked at how you spent your cash, what would they see? What would they conclude is truly important to you in your life? See, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the Lord. He's the overall, he's the leader of all areas of our lives, not just spiritual parts on Sunday morning, not just our prayer and Bible reading or journaling time, but he is the Lord of all. The gospel, the good news is that God has acted in Jesus Christ to save us in every area of life. He's come to rescue us. He's come to reconcile us and to give us new life. And this is what he says, all things become new, every part of our lives. Hear me, including our money, and our stuff. That's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. And I want to lovingly challenge and remind you that spending matters because it ultimately reflects your values. So what do we do? It's important that you have a plan. When we think of spending, <clears throat> we should think of planning. Plan spending is essential for financial success. Well, what is plan spending? It's simply this. It's having a budget. Oh, PT, come on, man. That's, that's really restrictive. No. When you establish a budget, it really gives you incredible freedom and guardrails that you can financially live within. And especially if you're married, you begin to set this up together. 
It's kind of like having a map. You know, none of us probably use maps anymore. We've got these great GPS things. Remember when I used to drive, I'd have this map on the right in, in the passenger seat. And if I was going somewhere, I'd be able to pull over and look at it. It was great security. But if I didn't have that and I just had an address, well, it was really difficult to find the place. So this budget gives you a great security. Well, you know, I'm just not made for that. Can I tell you something? I'm not either. I'm a big picture guy. Every month we get these 20, 25-page reports of our church finances, and I kind of go through them. But can I tell you where I go? I go to bottom lines. Because I know what we're spending. I know what's coming in. I know what's going out. For some of us, we're the same way. But if you have, if you can, if you can establish a general uh, budget guideline, it'll help you, and I'll give you one in just a second. Because the average family's ambition is simply to make as much money as they spend. Or as someone once said, if your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will ultimately be your downfall. According to some financial counselors, a budget creates a 15 to 30% increase in your disposable income. How many of you could use 15 to 30% more income? Yeah. There's this old simple method that I learned years ago that I think is... Is, is really important if you say, well, I'm not just a big budget guy, so here, do this. It's called the 10-10-80 principle. It would cure most of your financial, um, fi financial issues if you begin to live by it. It's basically this. You give the first 10% to God, you, give the you save the next 10%, and you live on 80% of your income. Hear me, young people, students, young adults, before you start taking on a lot of indebtedness and areas and buying things, if you will start this principle and train yourself in godliness to do this, 10 giving, 10 saving, 80% to live on, you will set up your future quite well. Well, some of you go, oh, phew. come on, man, that's just really unrealistic. I just got married. I got a car payment. I got this and I got that. I can't afford it. Others are saying, it's too late for me. I'm well beyond that. Let me challenge you, loved ones. Ruthlessly examine your situation and ask, what steps do I or do we need to take to make this happen so that we can get out of debt and begin to live on a budget like that? Do you need a smaller house? Do you need to quit eating out so much, buying the nicest things, giving your kids all you want? Are you willing to humble yourself? and make those changes. There's nothing greater than being financially free other than knowing Christ and having a wonderful family that loves you. And that kind of leads to this next thing that everyone has to do if you're there. You gotta slay the dragon of debt. You gotta slay the dragon because if you don't, loved ones, guess what? It's gonna burn you deeply. Some of us in this room have probably already experienced that. Proverbs 22 7 says, The rule rich over the poor, and the borrow is a servant to the lender. That's one verse. There are plenty in the scriptures that I'm gonna give you. But debt often feels like that. Some of us, have you ever just felt like a, a slave to money and to your debt? Have you ever had bill collectors call you? Now we got caller idea. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Don't have to answer that one. But you can't avoid it forever because you carry it with you. 
Janine Aversa, who is an AP economics writer, noted this. The stress from deepening debt is becoming a major pain in the neck and the back and the head and the stomach for millions of Americans. When people are dealing with mountains of debt, they're much more likely to report health problems, according to the Associated Press AOL Health Poll. Get this, 10 million to 16 million are suffering terribly due to their debts, and their health is likely to be negatively impacted. Paul Lavarkas, who is a research psychologist and AP consultant, analyzed the results of the survey. The finding is supported by medical research that has linked stress and a wide range of elements to excessive debt. They come up with this 27% had ulcers or digestive tract issues compared to 8% with low levels of debt. 23% had severe depression compared with 4%. 51% had muscle, te muscle tension, pain in the lower back, compared with 31% of those with low levels of debt stress. People who reported high stress also were much more likely to have trouble concentrating and sleeping and were more prone to getting upset for no good reason due to their debt. Some of the brightest minds are paid enormous salaries to create advertising that's designed to overcome your resistance, to appeal to our weaknesses and to convince you that you've got to have their problem. Get this, uh, Scott Graham, who's the author of uh, More Money, Please, reports this. Credit card companies were, have set up marketing tents and booths. Have you ever gone to places where you see them, where they say, here, have our T-shirt, we'll give you this, if you fill out a credit card application? Well, these credit card companies are now marketing with tents and booths on college campuses to students to sign up for credit cards. Well, thankfully, the Credit Card Act of 2009 it says that companies are prohibited from offering incentives like free lunches and T-shirts to college students to sign up. But according to a report released by the Fed, credit card issuers paid a whopping $83,462,712 to colleges, universities, and institutions of higher learning in a way to promote student credit cards. As a result of the 83 million credit card issuers gained an extra 53,000 students opening up credit card accounts. Get this, $83 million to encourage students to open credit card accounts so they can live beyond their means and rack up more debt while they're in college. The average student debt now on credit cards is $4,100. They say that most students have multiple credit cards because of this. Here's what Dave Ramsey says. When you pay cash, you feel the money. You feel the money leaving you, but it's not true with credit cards. When you drop a credit card down on a register, there's nothing that, um, that, there's nothing that registers emotionally. A credit card used, when they, they did a study on this, when they used credit cards at McDonald's, they found out that if, if they would have paid cash versus a credit card, when they use a credit card, they spend 47% more on food there. How many of you can say, oh yeah. Personal finance, loved ones, is 80% behavior. And it's important to see the habits that you have and begin to ruthlessly cut them out. Romans 13.8 says this, let no debt remain. Outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. 
two things on this. If you have debts, prioritize repaying them. It's not your money. And I don't want to sound heavy-handed here, but I, I want to say this. And if, you've, if this has happened in the past, this is not to make anybody feel bad, but our culture has made it so easy to declare bankruptcy. And I believe there are times when it's maybe unavoidable for different reasons. But hear me, as a Christ follower, we don't have the right to take that easy way out. It's not our money. And that besmirches the name of the living God. So here's the question. Is your life wrapped up in things? Or is the motto on this currency your motto of life? You know what, which one I'm talking about? Four simple words. What does it say? In God we trust. Proverbs 11.4 says, Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. Righteousness delivers from death. I read this somewhere that when the World Trade Center was burning, people were fleeing for their lives. One news service reported, even during that panic, a worried man called his stockbroker in the building and his concern wasn't for people, but he wanted assurance that his money would still survive. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. All the money in the world isn't going to deliver you from death, loved ones. The righteousness of Jesus Christ will. Last week, a vintage 1952 Topps baseball card from Mickey Mantle sold for $1,135,250. Is that crazy or what? A card, a cardboard card. Well, what do you see? Value is determined by what someone will pay for it. What are you worth? No, no, not, not, not what your portfolio says, but your worth is determined by what somebody would pay for you. See, that's what God th thinks of your value, is he said this, I'm going to send my son, my only begotten son, to come and to live among you and to die for you. That's a pretty high value placed on our lives, isn't it? That's what God thinks of you. Peter, who was a close follower and friend of Jesus Christ, wrote a book to explain Jesus a little more in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Never forget, loved ones, you were bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Why? So that we can have a relationship with him. See, don't we think we can figure this life stuff out? And how many of us have made a mess out of so many areas of our life? It's because we need the wisdom of God and we need the Spirit of God. Not so that we're in control, but so He gives the Spirit control to us so that we can live out what He wants us to live out. Aren't you glad that God doesn't come and doesn't point an accusing or punitive finger at us? No, this is what he did. He extended the, the arms of his son on the cross to do what? To pay a debt. There's an old chorus that says he paid a debt. He did not, oh, I owed a debt. I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sin away. That's what Jesus did for you and I. 
And now he challenges us. I don't want you to live with debt. I want you to live with one debt. And that's the debt to love people on my behalf. I want you to live with the debt that with your resources you can make a difference.